Spoiler alert, dear audience. Today's episode may reveal details that will give you an idea of where things will be in six months. It's one of those episodes where a lot of little things are clicking into place that give us a pretty good indication of what's to come. So I guess what I'm saying is you could listen to today's episode and then take the next six months off. Just not from the pot. When we discussed this intro, it sounded like we were going to make a joke, but you sounded so serious. I know. <laughs> well, I thought, why not go all in? Right. Okay. Because <laughs> it really feels like that this week. Like, it's not like a huge news week. It's not like anything's blowing us away, but there's obvious kind of signaling and some details that are clicking into place that to me will play out over, like I said, the next six months or so, or maybe even a little longer. Right. So some of those signals might be the legal jeopardy facing Alexei Herzog, the Tornado Cash developer. It's kind of a spoiler alert for how the legal system will be deployed against open source developers, probably in the Bitcoin space. MetaMask is, of course, tracking users' IP data. So another shocker, Bitcoiners were always right using a, it's not exactly custodial, but it's a sort of self-custody wallet with a custodial infrastructure yeah. around or, or a wallet as a service back end wallet as a service. Yeah. Custody was the wrong term there, but MetaMask seems so insecure that it might as well be you know, custodied by someone else, possibly. It's in your browser. You got you got private keys in your browser. You know, you go to websites. Websites run arbitrary code in your browser and you got your private key in your browser. Like, why don't you just write it on your forehead? <laughs> yeah, put it in your Twitter profile. <laughs> <laughs> you can trust Twitter. <laughs> And what is the other hint? There should be three. I think there's a debate. It's been going on for weeks. We kind of touched on it really kind of surface level last week. And in Bitcoin Core version 24, a new optional flag for mempool operators has been introduced. And I think over the next six months or so, we are going to see a bit of a debate in the Bitcoin community as people choose to implement. That is a good point. And I was actually on a panel at Adopting Bitcoin 2022 where this was discussed because maybe we can get into that on our conference recap section. And spoiler alert, another spoiler alert. Am I going to go to Adopting Bitcoin 2023? Stay tuned to find out. <laughs> I'm going to find out by asking you how 2022 was. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, November 25th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here as always with me. Hey, it's Chris. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Hey, you're actually here. You made it from El Salvador. You I know. Survived. We're back in person. It's really nice. Yeah. And you've traveled and you didn't get any con crud. Double impressed. Con crud is like sickness. Yeah. That's what we called it before the Rona is where you go to a, because it is almost always universally true that when you go to a conference, you get some kind of crud. Well, I wore a mask, hat and privacy glasses the whole time just because there were a lot of cameras around. And, you know, I mean, obviously our voices are out there, but we didn't sign up to be YouTube influencers. So we don't need to. Yeah. You went for the semi-anonymous in public approach. Yeah. And I did not get sick. So I think that might be a hack. Very much so. I have so many questions about the conference and about El Salvador. Do you want to save them for a little bit and we'll get into it in a bit or do you want to do them now? Well, why don't we do the quick news thing then jump into that because it is a very quick news week. And... I bought something off this new service, so I could I can actually speak authoritatively about the entire process. Oh, well, this is fantastic. Okay, and Chris has hinted at our first story, which is this interesting Bitcoin-powered Craigslist alternative called Satscrap, or Satscrap? I think it's Satscrap, yeah. Satscrap. <laughs> Trade your crap for Sats. 
And it does what it sounds like. You trade crap for sats. You know, think of kind of Craigslist, I suppose. But for those of us who want to spend sats, I think the folks behind this do like artwork sales too, also with Bitcoin. So they they have some experience selling goods for sats. And um, on the back end, it's a BTC pay server implementation. But it has a really high commission because if you make a posting, you're supposed to send some sort of deposit as the seller, which I guess ensures that you actually have the thing and you're not just spamming their platform. But then they charge you a 10% commission on the sales price. That's really high, right? Yeah. So uh, I did I did notice that my like $60 item was a $70 item when I was all said and done. I was like, oh, all right. It was actually a really cool eclectic gift for the holidays that I'm going to give a family member. So um, I'm happy paying the 70 bucks, but it was like 59 something listed, you know, and then all said and done. But uh, I feel like the pricing to begin with is pretty fair. At least right now, they have a Mi Smartband 6 for 42 bucks. They've got a Pixel. 6 Pro for like 350 bucks on here. Um, so they have pretty reasonable prices. A Dell uh, 180 watt docking station for $104. I mean, I guess you're paying a bit of a premium because you can use SATs. You don't have to KYC with PayPal or something. So more private, I guess. Yeah. Um, Pixel 6a un- unlocked, brand new, totally mint condition, $342. It'd be pretty hard to ever track that purchase back. Either. Yeah. I guess if you need to buy a phone privately, that that's an option. And there's other things on here like RAM and video games. Because if you're going to use a legacy app like Swappa that does phone sales in the US and you don't want to reveal all your information, you're going to end up lying on the forum and then maybe they don't honor the transaction and fine you or something. You're, you're violating the terms of service if you try to use it privately, I think. Yeah. Um, I've tried Swappa as well. This is way, way simpler because you just give it your name, you give it a shipping address, and then when you click buy, it generates a modal pop-up BTC pay and it defaults to on-chain, but you can just hit the box to go to Lightning and you can pay as a lightning invoice and it's as you would expect super quick i actually got confirmation on the website that my purchase was complete before the cash app even said locally the purchase was complete it was really fast interesting that was our first story and we also have others so we're going to just touch on the ftx bankruptcy there's all sorts of allegations swirling around which is the next company in the bitcoin crypto ecosystem to go belly up but the ftx story is turning into an interesting regulatory battle between the bahamas and the u.s over who gets to oversee the ftx bankruptcy. And so this is, I guess, regulatory arbitrage at work, but maybe not the positive way people imagine. We also have some privacy slash tokenomics story. MetaMask is collecting user IP addresses. Surprise, surprise, using a centralized wallet backend leaks a huge amount of privacy data, which could be valuable also, especially to perhaps tax authorities and regulators who want to control people's usage of crypto. In technology, we have Bitcoin Core version 24 released, which of course has this full mempool RBI function, which we'll talk about. And we also found an article about a debate around decentralization and scalability for Mastodon. That's kind of a big topic right now as people are considering Twitter alternatives. And of course, decentralization is key to the whole premise of Bitcoin. In privacy, Alexi P, the Tornado Cash developer is still being held. And it, it's, it's interesting. There might be some secret context here that explains what's going on, but it also might be that courts are so dumb, they just don't understand how technology works. And so if you're pushing the envelope with technology, you might just get thrown in jail because you can't explain it to a court why what you did is just free speech and not something nefarious because like literally these people are so dumb and ignorant. It's kind of shocking. And then in Bitcoin education, we're going to have a discussion about the Adopting Bitcoin conference, which I went to last week. It was really interesting. So I'll kind of give a summary where I think that conference development space is at and whether or not Chris should go next year. And I think that that'll be our show. And then some boosts and stuff like that. Maybe even rumor has it a correction or two or one. We love corrections.
<laughs> yeah, at least. Uh, you know who needs a few corrections is Sam Bankman Freak. You know what I'm saying? Oh. Yeah. Oh. You know what I find really kind of the most, if I were to zoom out, out of all of the developments, which we we really do track the nearly hourly developments in our Matrix Bitcoin chat room, there's this whole story about somebody hacked FTX and transferred all the funds out. And now it's coming out that perhaps it was even SBF himself by instruction of the authorities in the Bahamas. And just the nature of that element about customer funds potentially being seized by SBF and then given to the authorities, or maybe it's a hacker. I just can't, I can't really wrap my head around how wild this story has got. And if the authorities in the Bahamas have the funds, I don't really see what leverage the U.S. authorities have. Like, <laughs> they've got them. You know, they've got the customer funds. Like, if you want, hey, if people want their funds back, you got to let us handle this thing. Well, Nick Carter's partner, Matt Walsh, is calling for the SEALs to go in there and to basically annex the Bahamas over this, which seems a slightly extreme position to take. But frankly, if a country exists solely as a way to, to do a regulatory end run around the U.S., is the U.S. really going to put up with that? I wonder. And that kind of seems like what's going on here. I think they are. I mean, as we record right now, Sam is scheduled to hold a talk at the New York Times event next week with Zelensky, with the CEO of Amazon. No way that, that happens. No way. He tweeted that he's going to be there. I mean, he's clearly delusional. He's walking around the Bahamas, going to the supermarket and doing interviews with journalists when he's clearly going to be facing prison time in a criminal complaint. I hope. I mean, at this point, I mean, I don't like to see anybody go to jail. But at this point, I think in part, I feel kind of like he's getting away with it because there's also been several very pro-Sam articles by major news outlets to kind of paper over what he's done. You know, he had such good ambitions, they write. Uh, he wanted to save the world, they write. It got a little ahead of him. You know, he's young. He didn't mean to, they write. What, what, what was that article? Is that New York Times? Yeah, the New York Times, I think, in particular, and I think the Wall Street Journal. I wonder how the reporting is changing, because I just think that it might take a while for people who have taken money from Sam or bought his BS to, to pivot. But in the end, what he's done is so clearly illegal and immoral that I think they're going to pivot hard. And there was even sort of a discussion in the effect of altruism community about how, gosh, maybe our God complex of thinking we're so smart that we can save the world through complicated models of altruism led to behavior like Sam being a freaking psychopath. So, you know, I think when you embarrass people that much by getting them to trust you and then kind of turning on them, they're going to they're going to pivot hard. But one man's opinion. I hope and we've seen that in some of the outlets like Vox. Vox pivoted very hard. It is interesting. A lot of the outlets that seem to be struggling are outlets, I think, that took grants. I think that is an element of this. I think it's kind of interesting to see Janet Yellen, Sam Bankman Fried, President Zelensky, Mark Zuckerberg and others on the same panel, on the same list of speakers as if they're all equivalents. Oh, no way. I think people like that try to be very careful about who they appear with and there's no way they're going to get on stage and take a photo with sam i think he's going to be remote oh okay yeah he'll come in over zoom or something like that like like snowden because he couldn't go to the u.s right now right the Bahamas has an extradition treaty with the U.S., and that's why Sam and Caroline of Alameda tried to flee to the UAE or Dubai, but then they were prevented from doing that. So they're kind of in limbo right now. It's probably just a matter of time before the U.S. issues an extradition request, and then the Bahamas and the U.S. need to hash out who gets to prosecute these people. I mean, let's just say the quiet part out loud. There's clearly a lot of corruption around FTX in the Bahamas because yeah, yeah. there's no reason for them to be there. They shopped around for the loosest regulatory area to be in 
FTX was a shady company that never even had a U.S. bank account. And Sam bought personally something around $300 million worth of real estate in the Bahamas. That's a significant portion of the Bahamas GDP last year was Sam Bankman fried buying real estate for his friends and family. You see his folks were buying up real estate down there too. You know, for law professors and pillars of the establishment, they're not looking too morally upright right now. They seem to be awful flush for cash for teachers. The other interesting thing that came out is that there were eight members of Congress, four Democrats, four Republicans, so it's nice and bipartisan, that tried to block investigations into FTX and tried to hobble the SEC's ability to do any further investigations. Kind of remarkable to see that. And <laughs> you're just not going to believe this, Dad. It's just, oh, what are the coincidences? But um, these eight Congress critters that tried to hobble the SEC's work here... <laughs> also took money from FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, what are the chances? The system is working as designed. So, the yep. U- I mean, the U.S. Congress and Senate were brilliant at eliminating corruption by legalizing it <laughs> in the form of campaign financing yeah. laws and, and lobbying and disclosures. It Sam got what he paid for. He got what he paid for. So to everybody who thinks the U.S. is a model for the world, here's another win system works as uh, expected. I don't think there's really too much to say here because a lot is evolving in the FTX yeah. situation. But it's interesting because Bitcoin doesn't care. If you no. hold your own keys. If we were to go kind of meta analysis on it, these are a lot of the bottom signals I've been waiting for. I'm not saying we're at the bottom and the bottom can last a long time, but I've been waiting for crypto is dead. To me, it's not a proper bear market until crypto is dead by like all the mainstream media, right? And we have reached crypto. Crypto collapse is the cute little alliteration that a lot of the mainstream media. I was over uh, at a family member's house yesterday and they had the news up and guess what was up on the screen? Lower third that read crypto collapse. Um, And I have noticed certain news outlets, CNBC, Fox Business, and a couple of others are bringing on Bitcoiners to give them a chance to explain why Bitcoin is different than the rest of crypto. And you're seeing folks like Lynn Alden. She's tweeting memes now about how crypto sucks and Bitcoin great. Like you're seeing higher signal from Bitcoiners right now than I think you've ever seen. A stronger signal than we've ever seen from the Bitcoiner community about the differences between crypto and Bitcoin. And Natalie Bertel and a few others are being asked and like folks like Michael Saylor, uh, Corey Klipschen from Swan and a handful of other folks are being asked to come on to mainstream media and make their case for why Bitcoin is a better product. And I don't know if they'll be totally successful in reaching everyone, but I don't think the noobs out there to Bitcoin can appreciate the difference in this bear cycle. The media is choosing to book these guests. They're choosing to book Natalie. They're choosing to book Sailor because they already know what they're going to say. They already know that Natalie Bertel is going to come on and have a pro-Bitcoin, anti-crypto stance. That's her whole brand. The bookers are aware of that. And the fact that the bookers are choosing to bring on Bitcoiners to talk about the differences between Bitcoin and crypto, I think long term is extremely good. They're starting to actually get it in the mainstream media in some circles. It's not everywhere yet, but it's way better than I've ever seen in the last 14 years of kind of up and down cycles. I have never seen Bitcoin this positively covered after something like a Mt. Gox crash. After after Mt. Gox crashed, it was the end of Bitcoin. Bitcoin was destroyed. It was dead. It was over. Bitcoin OGs thought it was over after Mt. Gox. This is is a totally different deal. Okay, I got a 
meta take for you. I want to run this by you. I gave a presentation at Adopting Bitcoin. It was kind of goofy and fun, but I looked up some data and coins on exchange as calculated by Glassnode peaked in March 2020. Actually, a little bit before January 2020. 2020? Yeah. Oh, okay. So we had a we had a bull market because remember in February or March, that was when Bitcoin shot down, basically dropped like a stone to 3,000 or something during the COVID panic. And then we had a bull market where balances on exchange increased a little bit, but they never, they basically held sideways and then down. And the amount of Bitcoin on exchange never went back to the pre-pandemic levels. And then it's dropped like a stone again with the FTX news. So this is really interesting because I think that in a way, financial contagion and maybe even regulatory attack makes Bitcoin supply on exchange reduce, which kind of means that you could dump the price because there's a small float on exchange to sell into. And so if you sell into that float, you can kind of saturate the market and and see very low price spikes. But what inevitably happens is that those dips are bought. They flow off of exchange into hodlers' wallets, and then there's less supply to ever sell again. And so the behavior of Bitcoin holders is so bullish. It's like, I'm not a financial price go to the moon person. I'm just looking at that chart. And it looks to me as a amateur that the price kind of has to go to the moon one day, just because in there's no evidence in the data that low Bitcoin price leads to big Bitcoin holders being like, nah, I'm good. This thing doesn't work. Sell it all. Let's move on. Right. That doesn't happen. No, we're seeing more conviction on hodling than ever right now. And this might sound like two wrecked Bitcoiners. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. You know, talking themselves up. No, I don't think it is. That's just how it looks well, like on the on exchange. The data backs the data. us up right now. So this number came out. Oh, this came out a while ago, but it was it was floating around this last week. CryptoQuant and Glassnode. I think Glassnode reconfirmed. That's why it was that's why it was going around this week is Glassnode also confirmed roughly 12 percent, just 12 percent of the Bitcoin supply is on exchanges. 12%. So all the price action we're seeing is for just 12% of the supply and everybody else is hodling. And when these horrible markets happen, statistically, the hodl waves just get stronger. And uh, you can go glass note, go search for glass note hodl wave and you can just see the trend is our friend. And this, what you have just touched on, what you just outlined there is why ultimately I am really, really bullish because I don't even care if major institutions get in this or not. When you've got 12% on exchanges and then you've got thousands upon thousands upon tens of thousands of, of us just DCAing all the time, we're going to set a floor on this thing eventually. And the price is going to inevitably go up uh, because the supply is just getting more and more limited. And every time these companies screw up like FTX just has, it just it's a better price story for Bitcoiners long term. I mean, yeah, you got to pay for it short term, but uh, I'll take it today, you know, for a great return later. Yeah, you bet. Last week, you asked if FDX was suppressing the price of Bitcoin, and I said yes. And I'd just like to mention again, yes, coins on exchange that are not real coins. When people think they own Bitcoin on exchange that the exchange did not go and buy and they were lying to their customers, that does suppress the price of Bitcoin. It's, yeah, it's Bitcoin rehypothecation. And that probably resulted in a slightly different pattern of a bull market that we had this year, because this year we had a big run up, but we didn't have that blow off top that every previous bull market has had. And the difference in market dynamics might be that at least FTX and probably some other exchanges were taking leverage, as in they were 
taking people's money for Bitcoin and then not buying the Bitcoin themselves, which means they created Bitcoin out of thin air. And we only find out when people try to withdraw and the exchange collapses. So that's interesting. And will that happen again? Probably, I think. I mean, unless we move to more decentralized on-chain exchanges. And that actually might happen because now we have, thanks to Barack, BitMatrix on Liquid, which is a, a automated market maker on Liquid. So if you've got stable coins, you can buy Liquid Bitcoin using BitMatrix on Liquid. Liquid is such a black box to me. Well, I would love to talk to you about it. Barack, the Lightning Slayer is a liquid maximalist. Yeah, really. I'm not opposed to it. I think one of the things that I've always really appreciated about Bitcoin is compared to all the other cryptocurrencies, there's a simplicity to it that I can wrap my head around. And it it definitely, and this is the way it goes, but it feels like when we enter the liquid territory, it begins to slip beyond my complete understanding. And I get a little apprehensive about that because then it starts to feel like an altcoin. <laughs> yeah, complexity is a worry. I think that actually happened to a lot of people around SegWit. SegWit did something slightly clever by changing the way that transactions go into blocks. And a lot of Bitcoin cash people lost their minds. And actually, Barack was originally a Bitcoin casher because he didn't understand Lightning and he thought that big blocks made sense for scaling. And then he decided that actually the centralizing effect of big blocks was too bad for chain security. Yeah, boy, it'd be nice if some other people could get that uh, through their head so they stop pumping things like Dogecoin. Not thinking of anyone in particular, but I happen to know some people that seem to be pumping Dogecoin because they think it has high transaction speeds, <laughs> and that's what makes it good. Is this person also an amazing manager? Yeah, really a top manager. Yeah, very elite A player manager. <laughs> Is firing half your workplace after you buy a company yeah. for 10 times what it's worth? Yeah. This is, this is good management, right? I mean, I guess half would be okay. But if you could get it closer to like 75, then we're talking. So we're referring to the current drama on Twitter. Elon Musk bought the company at an overvalued price that was a joke. He bought it for $54.20. So, was it that much? I thought it was $44. $54? No, $54.20. That was his joke. It was a meme joke oh, yeah, price. Okay. Oh, it's so funny. And then he signed a binding deal to buy the company where he waived all his rights to do due diligence. And then the market turned a little. He basically signed this deal at the top of Twitter stock or it was already slipping. And then he realized, man, it's going to be hard to, to finance this thing. Like I might actually lose my shirt on this. Then he discovered, wait, I impulsively signed a binding contract to buy. He tries to get out of it. Twitter sues him. They make him buy the company. He's very petulant. He fires the entire board and like executive, most executives. He has to pay the massive golden parachutes as they leave, of course. He inadvertently screws his relationship with advertisers on the platform because he fires the head of advertising who owns all those relationships. That seems like a bad move. Then proceeds to fire half the workforce after making crazy statements like all of the coders need to print out all their code and Elon Musk is going to review it himself, which is just preposterous. I don't think he's a Ruby on Rails specialist, which I think is what Twitter's code base is written in. And it tries crazy ideas like if you want to be verified on Twitter, just pay Twitter $8 so a bunch of people verify as brand names and start spreading misinformation and hilarious announcements, tainting these brands, basically ensuring that Twitter will never get advertising revenue again because it's not a quote-unquote safe 
space for your brand. As a result, a lot of people are looking at maybe using Mastodon more than Twitter. So there are a lot of tutorials on how to set up a Mastodon instance. Decentralization. Once again, although I have to say, Bitcoiners love themselves some centralized Twitter. There are large sections of the Bitcoin chattering class that just fundamentally operate under the assumption that literally every other person with a Bitcoin address has a Twitter address as well. Have you noticed this? Like they all assume it. And like at Bitcoin events and conferences, they just talk about it like everybody's on Twitter. I find that to be particularly obnoxious because as Bitcoiners, they should know better and they should be pushing for the decentralized solution. But because they all want to be influencers, uh, they don't seem to mind. Says two influencers. Oh my God. Are we influencers? Uh, not on Twitter, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I I think I got a Twitter like once. Yeah, you see, there's no uh, algorithm in podcast land. It's a true, genuine, competitive, free marketplace. And we are surviving on the merits of the show. And we, that is it. We are basically screaming into the void yeah. and randomly people here. It's, uh, it's a totally different thing than YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, where the algorithm will incentivize the creator to do outrageous stuff to get more spread. You don't really have that in podcast land. So you see such a wide range. But... I just wanted to call out Bitcoiners on that because so many quote unquote influencers on Bitcoin basically have made their entire brand off the back of Twitter. And I think that there's some problems with that because we know that social media platforms and environments incentivize certain types of engagement. And so Bitcoin Twitter is sort of famously toxic and aggressive. Yeah. I've read many comments on Twitter that seemed not very productive and needlessly antagonistic. And just wild speculation on all ends of the spectrum. But then I've met these writers recently at this conference and thought, gosh, these are such normal people. I think what's going on is that the Twitter platform is incentivizing them to communicate in a very aggressive way because in person they're very normal in their communication. So I'm glad you've had this experience because this is one that you've probably heard me mention on the JB shows before. I know somebody in particular who is pretty hostile on social media. They take very strong stances and then they battle with anybody who argues with them. And that's what they'll spend a couple hours of their evening doing is having Twitter fights. Then I meet this individual in person or individuals in some cases, and they're totally great. And what might be a fight on social media, what might be an argument in a chat room is a punchline in person. And things that would be huge disagreements are just kind of like laughed about and sorted out in person. And there isn't this moral grandstanding. I mean, not to go too deep into this, but I think in part, it's been a rough few years. People are stressed out, especially with the economy and things the way they are. And so if you can go online and torch somebody who's a morally repugnant to you, then you get to take the high ground. You get to be the good guy for an evening and, you know, make an example of some moral. And I think it's just too tempting to people who are desperate to vent. And so even though they're totally normal and polite in person online, they are subject to their darker impulses. I think I've definitely felt this. When I first got on Twitter for the show, I actually tried to engage with Rohan Gray, the eCash, private eCash, modern monetary theorist. And that was shocking to me how aggressive and unpleasant it was to communicate with Rohan. He's someone who's definitely got something going on because he seems pretty normal when he talks to people. But then on Twitter, he's a, he's a monster. And I kind of fought with him for a bit. And I, I felt like I was kind of taking a high ground too. So it was this very unproductive thing. And 
Yeah. It was interesting. I think that uh, having a platform to uh, talk about our thoughts and concerns about Bitcoin is also healthy yeah. for not needing to engage in a very unproductive Twitter conversation. But to return to that subject, there's this article by a developer named Armin Ronacher, Ronacher, I think he's Austrian, about how scaling Mastodon is impossible. And it's kind of interesting because these are the you could replace Mastodon with Bitcoin here almost. And the TLDR, let me give you my take and you can correct me, is that basically Armin sees the efficiency of having a platform that is centrally managed by a professional team as a developer. He thinks that's the the best solution because your centrally managed company platform is going to be pretty secure, pretty well run theoretically, and everyone can just sign up and use it and they can scale out resources and make it work on the back end. Whereas with a decentralized system, the size of the Mastodon instance that you're connecting to is going to be a factor on your user experience. Branching out and connecting to other Mastodon instances is much more complicated than seeing what other Twitter users are doing on a single instance. And he thinks that not enough people want to run back an infrastructure such that Mastodon will just become a federation of huge servers run by companies anyway. So I don't see the analogy there to Bitcoin because for Mastodon, there seems to be a negative set of incentives to run your own instance. This is something I've been debating. My community would very much like me to run a Mastodon instance, but I have learned from running a matrix instance that federated technologies are extremely complex and have a ton of traffic related to communications throughout the federation. And it's a very, very demanding kind of infrastructure. So I've been very calculated in deploying Mastodon. See, it's a set of in- disincentives for me. But running my own node, I feel like there's a set of incentives for me. I, I, I enhance my privacy. I get my own set of source of truth. I get to participate in the global consensus. Like there's it's a it's a positive thing for me to run my own node. Well, also, when we run our own Bitcoin node, it's for us. So our Bitcoin node will help the rest of the network bootstrap and propagate transactions. But I don't need to open up my node API for wallet calls to the broad internet. I don't need to share my Electrum server with everyone on the internet. It would be helpful if my Electrum server were publicly accessible because then you wouldn't have to run your own wallet. You could connect to my server and look up your balances. But I don't want to deal with the traffic. And also, I don't think you should do that because that now I see your balances too. And now I know your IP address and your Bitcoin wallet public key. Yeah, I don't want that data. No. And people who are making those services available, they want your data. And why do they want your data? Nothing good. <laughs> never a good answer. Nothing good for you will yeah. come from that. The answer is never a good one. You know, you just nailed it there. You could even boil it down. You could reduce it even further and say the Bitcoin network thrives when everybody acts to their own incentives. In the Mastodon network, you need to kind of be altruistic. You need to be doing something for the good of other people. You know, you got to run this instance and communicate with the federation that supports other users and makes it a good good Mastodon community for other people, right? When you're running a Bitcoin node, you're running it for yourself. And when you follow your own incentives, it happens to benefit the network. And I actually think that's one of the beautiful designs about Bitcoin is for the most part, when everybody follows their own incentives, Bitcoin thrives as a result and everyone else benefits by following their own personal incentives. But in the Mastodon network, I think that arrangement is the app is the actual reversal. And there's always going to be some friction there because of that, because you're doing things for others. You're running this for others. It's infrastructure for others. And it's, and it's hard to make them pay you for it or something. 
something. Yeah. Also, yeah. there's an argument here that the activity pub protocol that Mastodon is built on is just not particularly good. And so it doesn't seem to scale out with instances super well. And that's actually the story of Bitcoin because the Bitcoin peer-to-peer protocol wasn't great initially. And over 10 years, it's gotten really efficient and really scaled very well. And I think that's important because for, for Bitcoin to work, it has to work. For Mastodon to work, it has to work. And the, I guess the argument here is that Mastodon might not work at a higher scale. I think, too, there will be better technologies. There will be Mastodon itself is a little bit old. It's been around for a decade. Um, it was never really designed in the, in the era of we could have a million concurrent users. And so it was kind of designed around this idea that we'll have tens of thousands of different instances with thousands of users. But we'll see how see how that works out. I, I think there are other things like, uh, I think it's like Pluma or Plumera, something like there's other software code bases that are a little more efficient. They're maybe written in Go or something like that and uh, easier to run, easier to maintain, less overhead. So if more users got on, on board, um, I think we'd see that stuff worked out like we have with Bitcoin. You know, one of the things about Bitcoin is it's one of the most successful cryptocurrencies because it has it is the most successful because it has the widest network adoption. And when we talk about network adoption, these are some of the second and third order effects you get with good network adoption is you get this sort of stuff worked out. On the subject of networks, MetaMask is the most popular Ethereum wallet. It's a browser based wallet. You just install it as a plug in into Chrome or Firefox, I think, or Brave browser. I hear popular and you you get a seed phrase that's generated in the browser and then suddenly you can start sending and receiving ethereum it's so great and i think that metamask has been a big part of why there's been so much interest in ethereum because it's a very easy onboarding experience it seamlessly integrates into browser-based web apps and it's insanely insecure because if you've been paying attention for the past three years every day there's a couple of twitter posts about someone who clicked on a link they hacked my MetaMask and stole all my NFTs and Ethereum and whatever. So, you know, having a wallet in your browser when you're browsing the internet, it, I mean, it's crazy. It's like I'm driving a car through the city, like I'm holding my wallet outside the car, like, and you can just grab it. <laughs> I, like, I don't know who the good metaphor is. Yeah, it is pretty crazy. You're right. It is. It is wonky because you're totally dependent on the security of the browser. I have Albi, and for me, Albi is pointed at my own node, and I keep like ten thousand sats in their max, and I'm still nervous about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I completely agree. And MetaMask is like the exact opposite. It's like put all your stuff in there, make this your main, main primary wallet. Oh, and by the way, we're going to connect to some backend service as well, so that way we're constantly logging into our servers. Right, and MetaMask has hidden the complexity of running Ethereum from most users, and so many people who use Ethereum, they just thought it worked and it was okay because they didn't try to set up a full archival node that stores the entire Ethereum blockchain history and state at home and discover, oh wait, I cannot run this thing. I cannot sync this thing because it requires so much data. It requires so much in-memory computation that like, you can't buy a big enough computer in a regular computer store. You need enterprise hardware. You need a freaking server. So MetaMask hit all that from people. And as a result, it had their IP addresses and account balances. And now it's changed the, the consensus that owns MetaMask is changing their privacy policy. And they're making it clear that, yes, they will be collecting this data and sharing it with whoever they feel like. Not just that, but they are collating your IP address and your Ethereum wallet addresses during on-chain transactions. They're checking it and they're making a list and they're correlating those two things. Selling that to chain analysis, selling that to tax authorities, to regulators. I mean, NGMI, right? That's what well, they say. 
Again, you just said it. Who's behind MetaMask? Consensus. Where does all of Consensus's money come from? I could be wrong, totally, because I'm not an Ethereum expert. But my understanding is the primary source of Consensus's funding is essentially pre-mined Ethereum that they that they sell on the plebs when the market is high. Joe Lubin. So Ethereum. We think that Vitalik runs Ethereum. No, he's just like the Sam Bankman-Fried-esque frontman who's a little awkward and says techno-utopian things that sound smart, and so he gets on the cover of magazines. Speaking of SPF defenders, Vitalik's been on Twitter defending SPF. Oh, yeah. Well, Vitalik's talked openly about how Ethereum community really falls apart if we start going after scammers. Yeah, well, he, and he says, remember to be considerate and generous of Sam the person and that effective altruism isn't necessarily bad just because Sam said a few wrong things. And that's one of many things he said. And so, you know, these these are the people you got. You got Vitalik and you've got Consensus behind Ethereum. And Consensus owns MetaMask. Consensus is a company. Its business model is to dump <laughs> on other Ethereum users. Yeah, that's our Ethereum thesis. Joe Lubin is one of the early Ethereum bag holders. And actually, when, when Vitalik sold a bunch of Ethereum, he actually sold it to Joe Lubin. So Joe controls a massive amount of Ethereum. He might even be a like a majority, not a majority, but... It's just so gross. And, and Consensus has funded Ethereum development yep. to create a liquidity runway for Joe Lubin to dump Ethereum. That's the, like, once you see that, you can't unsee it. That's how Ethereum works. And it also means some of the biggest bag holders in Ethereum are behind software that is designed to have users store their keys with somebody else's service. That's like the whole thing. And then they've designed this MetaMask, which has been responsible for some of the largest customer funds stolen directly out of wallets in all of crypto history. It's like direct, like reach right in and grab money out of your wallet. That's MetaMask. And now, now just to make sure that you understand what they've always been doing, they've updated their policy on November 23rd to just put it all out there. Your IP and your Ethereum wallet address and on-chain transactions are all being collated and they're watching it all for you. You're welcome. It's for your safety, I'm sure. And I think this is a great time to just revisit mevwatch.info that monitors oh, yeah. Yeah. the MEV boost relays that are regulated under OFAC and will censor transactions. And over the past day, on the include all blocks function, 71% of relays endorsed OFAC compliance. But if we if we actually undo that, I think that they kind of ignore uh, the non-MEV relay blocks. So they're basically ignoring the small, maybe ideological miners of or validators of Ethereum because they're just they're not tied into the MEV boost infrastructure that kind of is more efficient. 80% Ethereum is compliance. Enjoy. It's it's compliant with the US government. They created a worldwide cryptocurrency that is subject to US government laws. And Lido, as we've talked about before on this show, is the biggest staker. That's where everybody's given up their coins and they cannot get them back now. And like Dad was just saying, Lido is uh is sitting at a nice geez. Wow. Wow. I actually had to zoom in to verify. 86% of all blocks processed by Lido, the largest staking provider in the Ethereum ecosystem by a wide margin, 86% are censored. 86%. But Chris, I thought you could start attacking a network once you, ha once you had 51% of the consensus. <laughs> Yeah, are well, say, are you saying Ethereum's not secure anymore? No, I would never presume. You know, you, you know, see, the thing you're forgetting, Dad, is that there's tens of thousands of all those distributed nodes that are distributing. Con oh, oh, wait, wait, oh, <laughs> that's Bitcoin. Sorry, David. What did you say? You could run 10,000 validators on an M1 MacBook Air. I don't think anyone's doing it, buddy. <laughs> I don't think anyone could do it. Oh, I bet 10,000 validators on a MacBook Air might. 
ours. Oh my gosh. David, you know... People who know, know you're not running 10,000 validators on a laptop. <laughs> try, try not to cry when you hear this, David. <laughs> <laughs> not to be mean. MetaMask and surveillance on Ethereum. This is a teaser for the future we're moving into, which is one of financial surveillance. It's spoiler one, alert. Spoiler alert there. Here's another spoiler alert on the Bitcoin core side. And I think it's more positive, shall we, shall we say. We've linked to the release notes of Bitcoin core version 24. And this might seem a little technical, but we're going to just read through and talk about the big change, which is there's a new configuration option called mempool full RBF. This lets a user change their node policy with regards to confirming and mining unconfirmed transactions. Right. And specifically those services or Bitcoin, I guess you could say users even, that would just see the first unconfirmed transaction, the first version of that they see, and they'll just assume that the rest of the network will come to consensus that that transaction is legit. And some co people call it like a simplification. Um, it's called the first scene transaction. And um, I think some services like BitRefill might take advantage of this, or maybe the Moon Wallet that we've talked about. John Carvalho's wallet using slash tags has taken advantage of this. So replace by fee was always possible in Bitcoin, because if I send a transaction, the fee's not high enough, it gets stuck in the mempool, I can send the same transaction again with a higher fee. And if a miner sees the transaction with a higher fee, then they will mine it. Right. But because there were businesses that were using zero conf transactions to sort of game Bitcoin consensus to sort of make the user experience faster, they didn't like this. And so replaced by fee started as an opt-in where you have to add a little flag to the transaction that says replaced by fee. And then merchants who use zero conf transactions, they wouldn't accept replaced by fee transactions. And they could kind of feel a little bit more safe that the unconfirmed tr transaction would eventually be confirmed. But this is trust. This isn't Bitcoin consensus. Yeah. And there's nothing in the Bitcoin protocol that guarantees that that first transaction you see is actually going to be the one the entire network agrees on. The software didn't make it easy to do this, though. And now with mempool full RBF, you can just set that on and your mempool becomes an RBF free for all. And it's an opt-in thing. It's opt-in. It's not the default. Default is mempool full RBF off. So it's opt-in, but it was controversial because, you know, people like John, who I look forward to talking to him in the future, but I mean, he's one of these people who gets a little dramatic on Twitter and he's talking about a Bitcoin course conspiracy and radicalism around mempool full RBF. And I just think that's nonsense. I was sort of pleasantly ignorant until after our episode last week. Um, about the level of debate that have been going on here. And you've seen other people argue, well, it's for the users, it's for services. Um, and to me, it just feels like this is such a pre-lightning argument. But uh, what's wrong with this compromise? Since it's, you know, the mempool operators, it's opt-in. They can choose to implement this or not. Uh, this seems like the appropriate way to resolve something like this. What do you, what am I missing here? You're not missing anything. And actually, the dramatic responses were the appropriate response from people who are leveraging a technology that's on its way out. And really probably was never really meant to be used that way. I mean, John was very open about this, and I appreciate his open discussion that he wanted to take advantage of zero conf as long as it stuck around. And the implication in that statement is, yeah, you'll be dramatic when zero conf is out the door, because if you're dramatic enough and get this pushed back another release or two, then you get to use zero conf for a few more years, maybe. And the issue, though, is um, I feel like the more we talk about this and the more this becomes a public debate, the larger the threat vector of a double spend attack actually is, because it just 
because you're raising awareness where people are going to be trying it. You know, <laughs> don't you think like the more we talk about it, the more it's actually kind of going to become an issue. I just don't think zero conf is safe anymore. Right. If Barack is out there. Yes. Because, you know, I was joking at the conference, someone buy that guy a beer so he doesn't go home and break the lightning network again. Well, it turns out he doesn't drink. So there's, there's uh, no stopping no. him. What are we going to do? There's no stopping him. <laughs> I think that's the most interesting thing in the release notes. A couple of functions have been deprecated. The TLDR is that Bitcoin Core keeps on getting better. It's an incredibly professional project, and it is only contributed to by the top software developers in the world. And that kind of speaks to the trajectory for Bitcoin, which is upwards and onwards. I've watched a lot of open source development for a while, and one of the things I routinely see in the Bitcoin Core community is they're talking about big problems. They're they're trying to solve those big problems with technology technological solutions before they even become widespread, uh, like P2P network changes that landed in the last update. There's just stuff in there that, um, I guess to put it simply, it's not always the case, but you'll often see them acting proactively. You know, when something becomes a theory, it becomes a problem where traditionally, and I don't mean this disparagingly, but just due to resources and time and focus, traditionally in free software and in open source, it's often a very reactionary type of development model. It's very reactionary to these types of threats and securities, where in the Bitcoin community, especially Bitcoin Core, it's very proactive a lot of the times. And I really respect that. Whatever the opposite of respect is, <laughs> that's the feeling I get reading about Alexei Peretsev's detention yeah. in the Netherlands. Poor Alexei's not getting any respect. This is horrible. The, the uh, Tornado Cash developer you were speaking of. Right. So Tornado Cash was a smart contract on Ethereum. It arguably had some advantages over Bitcoin coin join, centralized coin join coordinators because the contract itself mixed the UTXOs. And so a malicious coordinator couldn't spy on users of the contract. That said, join market is better. So, you know, maybe that's the solution we should have supported this whole time. You and I, I, I mean, I don't I don't want to shock the audience. So brace yourselves. But spoiler alert, uh, we're not a big Ethereum fans, but uh we don't want to see this happen to the Tornado Cash developer. And the way they're making him just rot in a prison is horrendous. And I just want to zoom out and remind everyone that this happened immediately after the OFAC sanctions came in on Ethereum addresses that we were just joking about. It was a coordinated effort. The OFAC sanctions went out and Alexi was arrested. But the two are not necessarily directly related. No, it really doesn't have to do with OFAC. It has to do with money laundering. And the charge is that because Alexi was involved with Tornado Cash, he's responsible for all the money laundering that allegedly happened via Tornado Cash. Which is a horrible implication because it, it could mean like the developer of GNU PGP could be responsible for terrorist communications that are encrypted. That's uh, GNU PGP was considered a munition by the U.S. government in the 90s. And there was a big fight over the whether or not code is free speech. And in the U.S., we came down on the free speech side of the argument. But that apparently has not been clear to this judge in the Netherlands. And Alexei's lawyer has said, it's clear to us that these judges are not as familiar with the subject matter as they should be. At the moment, the case law bringing, regarding criminal activities is all about Bitcoin mixers. Mixers are custodial services. So yeah, if you're taking custody of people's funds and you're giving them back other people's funds, yeah, you're you're a financial institution. You're That's a regulated activity. But Tornado Cash is completely different. It's just a contract. It's a it's literally code on a blockchain. No one, they even burned the admin keys. So this is dangerous because if in this environment, people doing things with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, people doing privacy things are being targeted and you're, you can get your day in court, but it won't help you if the people involved are not intellectually curious enough to actually understand how this stuff works. 
Yeah, they're throwing arcane ideas at this guy. They're saying that it's a clear-cut case of money laundering because if you, as a bank, don't know where the money is coming from and haven't yet built in any mechanism to look at that, then there's a considerable likelihood that your service is laundering money. This is what the prosecutor said. And this is a joke because this service is not under anyone's control. You know, so they just can't even imagine what is happening here, the mechanisms that this is actually just an automated program executing according to predetermined rules and that the outcome of that program is maybe some people get to use Ethereum a little bit more privately. I can understand it's a it's a it is a bit of a paradigm shift and when you say it out loud, it makes me kind of appreciate the fact that some of these technologies you and I talk about just all the time are ginormous paradigm shifts for the normies out there. Like the idea that you could just have a piece of cloud software that just runs on its own without an operator or a service provider that's in control of it is a completely foreign idea to them. And yet we are hurtling into that reality. We are there and they're going to have to adapt. Maybe this is the case that forces that adaptation, or maybe this is one of the cases that suffers because of their ignorance. And this is how technological and social revolutions happen. The people on the front lines, like Alexi, they get hurt. And I think this is a argument for privacy in this space, because while you want to capitalize on your contributions to Bitcoin code, to the Bitcoin community, it's natural to want to feel affirmation and recognition for your efforts. I would say you don't need to put the name on your driver's license. Yeah. On those efforts. Resist it. Yeah. You know, you and I, we, we talk very positively about the Sparrow Wallet. I think it's a, one of the best pieces of software in the Bitcoin space, Sparrow Wallet. However, it's got a huge vulnerability. Craig Raw. The developer is publicly known. Craig, I think it's time to retire. Yeah. Retire somewhere to a beach on an island and Craig never comes back. But yet Sparrow Developments continues by a new anonymous contributor. There are anonymous contributors <laughs> just waiting. Yeah. We don't mention it often, but that's one of the reasons I appreciate the OpenSats project is I, I send them sats from time to time just to, you know, Sparrow is one of the many projects that they support. And um, hopefully if he ever has any legal trouble, the community will come together to support him. And the fact that the Ethereum community is not supporting Alexi really lets you know what that community is all about. Isn't that something? He is just, he's out there. He's got like a public defender. I mean, he's being, con he's being accused of having a relationship with the Russian secret service. So he's, he's clearly yeah. caught. It's just a bad situation. It's unfortunate. I think the free software community, the open source community, the software freedom conservancy and the S the, uh, you know, others should, should be stepping up, should be stepping up and, and saying something, but they're not. I understand why it's tempting not to, because Ethereum is scammy. This is a scammy yeah, yeah. project. It's a scammy thing built on a scammy project. But the problem is the law doesn't care. Legal precedent doesn't care. Once they build a legal precedent that if you do something that lets people get privacy on a blockchain, and now that's illegal, they generalize it everywhere. It's and bad. Suddenly, yeah. all sorts of people yep. are breaking the law. And that's why even we're not big Ethereum fans here on the show. You know, we still feel like this is an important issue to talk about because it absolutely will come around to Bitcoiners. This episode here is brought to you by the self-hosted podcast. We just recorded an episode with Wendell from Level One Tech that'll be coming out the week after this episode. So be sure to go to selfhosted.show to catch that. We get an update on Wendell's thoughts around home automation, storage, low power x86 boxes. Well, his version of low power, <laughs> at least. And uh, I talk about some of the goodies that I'm self-hosting. You can find it at selfhosted.show or search for self-hosted in your podcast app. Pew pew. I'm a big fan of Wendell. His video where he talks about that commercial quantum computer is one of the best explanations of how quantum computing actually works that i've ever seen he's a walking encyclopedia of 
motherboard, BIOS, CPU, memory combinations and facts and informations and settings. It's so fun to talk to him because you give him a subject and he is just authoritative. Self-hosted.show. Now for Bitcoin education, let's focus on a recap of the Adopting Bitcoin conference. And if we have time, we can mention Bitcoin Optech 227, which is in the show notes, and Catan's latest Sparrow Wallet guide, which is basically what we told you to do with Sparrow Wallet, Catan does with pictures. Very nice. That is handy. All right. So you're just, you know, you're showing up with your nice shirt. I like your shirt, by the way. And like behaving like you never just spent a week in El Salvador in the land of Bitcoin, where Bitcoin Beach is and uh, Max Kaiser runs free. He does run free. I, I literally saw him in his sneakers and those white shorts just sneaking around because I think he's a little bit tired of people wanting to do selfies with him. So he's always kind of furtive as he moves through the oh, space. Oh, the poor Bitcoin celebrity. Uh, before we get to the conference, uh, I, I'm just thinking about if I want to go next year. Um, overall, I'm just curious about your safety, the accommodations, how nice it was. Did it feel vacationy at all? Did it feel like you were visiting like maybe the rough streets of a U.S. city? Like, what was the experience that way? So El Salvador is the poorest country in Central America, and it shows. The infrastructure is not great. There are holes in the street. You see people driving vehicles that are not safe and probably should have been scrapped 10 years ago. So kind of like uh, Concrete Washington or some of the suburbs. Sure, Concrete Washington, <laughs> El Paso, Texas. Right, yeah. You know, basically, that's part Anywhere of Anywhere in New Mexico. With regards to security, what I've heard is that basically there are areas of the capital that are under gang control, and you'd never go to that area. But if you do go to that area, you are out of luck. Do you know any sense of where it's safe? And You're not going to wander into there by accident because it has that developing country, super poor vibe where you don't feel like walking around. It's not It's not like you're going to discover some amazing little thing. I mean, they're, they're nice restaurants or nice local restaurants. I went to a restaurant that was felt like it was in someone's home almost. It's just very mom and pop feeling. Yeah, like the bathroom had a shower in it, you know. And like there was like a plant in the shower, so it wasn't like take wow. a shower. But okay, I mean, I have been to places like that in the states, but it's very rare. So there's that, but at night it gets very dark. There's not a lot of street lights, even in the nicer areas. So uh, you know, and you know, frankly, the Crown Plaza where the conference was held, they had guards with M15s outside. You know, with machine guns. Most hotels will have at least one guard with a combat shotgun or a revolver. That's an intense feeling when you see that. Yeah, I mean, it feels very Mexico, and Mexico is another place where cartel and gang violence is part of everyday life. Did you witness any violence? No, no. And, you know, the sense I get from talking with, well, mainly Uber drivers and some El Salvadorian participants at the conference were a sense of, yeah, things are a bit better and we like the trajectory. We hope it lasts. So it was very practical acknowledgement that whatever is going on with the Bukele government seems to have improved security for people. And they're happy about that. At the same time, I don't think that everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid and thinks Bukele is like the most reliable or great, you know, great guy. Who knows? So you got a real mixed feeling? Not mixed. I mean, I think people are generally positive about the security situation. And I think that's where some of Alex Gladstein's boosting of the El Faro, uh, which is a local El Salvadorian newspaper that's been critical of Bukele. I think boosting the El Faro message, you know, sure, they have some interesting points and interesting criticisms of the Bukele regime. But you also have to remember that El Salvador is a country that's been essentially colonized by the United Fruit Company and foreign corporate interests for 
for 100 years. And the gang problem that rocks El Salvador today, it's generally the MS-13 gang, which was born in Los Angeles. And so this is like a country that keeps on getting blown up and screwed over by exported American problems. So they're really starting from a low bar. And when you don't have physical security, you just can't do anything. You can't do long-term investment. You know, the economy doesn't work properly. Education doesn't work properly. Everything doesn't work without physical security. And so is it okay to rely on kind of a strong man to get that physical security? Maybe that might be part of the social, economic, and political development of a country from, an, you know, basically an elite oligarchy that runs the country and economy, leaves everyone else in poverty. The gangs kind of are a symptom of this, and they pick on the poor and further exploit them to a country with more security, more political representation, and maybe you veer toward through authoritarianism to get there. There's no way to know how it all turns out, but I'm just open to the possibility that this is a positive sort of trend in their cycle of development, potentially. Okay. okay. All right. Well, then let's get to the Bitcoin stuff. So I'm curious to know, uh, again, one last pre-conference question. Um, did you actually spend any sats day to day? Did you get any goods, any food? Did you do any kind of transportation? Anything that you actually spent sats on in El Salvador? And how did that go if you did? Yeah, well, the Crown Plaza were set up with lightning. So, you know, you want some lunch or a beer. Did you catch what vendor was behind all that? I think a lot of it was Athena, the company that okay. did the Chivo wallet right. implementation. But they've jumped on lightning, huh? That's good to hear. Yeah, I mean, the Chivo wallet is still terrible. Don't use it. Yeah, that's why I was surprised, actually, just to be honest with you. I just basically heard nothing but bad things. So, But here's the thing. Foreigners who try to interact with the Chivo wallet are going to have a bad time. But I met some El Salvadorian people on my trip to El Salvador and home from El Salvador who use the Chivo wallet for remittances. And so for some people, it really works. And they were telling me like, yeah, it's it's really great because, you know, I used to spend 20 bucks or out of 100 bucks on a wire train or sending a remittance to my family. And now I spend zero. You know, that's a big savings. That's a 20 percent savings. I actually kind of wouldn't be surprised if that was like the primary use case of the Chivo wallet when they begin engineering it. Yeah. And it's a great use case. I think it's uh, if it worked better, it would be fine. The Athena developers, because I spoke to some of them, their point is, look, we know there's some bad experience and they don't even try to justify their customer support because their customer support is garbage. But they say that the issue is the KYC AML layer interacting with the transaction layer. Mm. And that basically their KYC AML breaks transactions and it's a you know hard problem to solve. And I'm just I'm just like, well... Yeah. If, you, if you say so. Tell that to strike and tell it to cash yeah, out. And... Seems to work for other companies. Yeah. And I think the, you know, part of the answer there is that Strike offered to build the Chivo wallet for El Salvador and Strike wanted what, fifty million dollars to do it? I mean, they wanted money. Yeah. And Athena was like, We'll do it for free, maybe? Who knows? <laughs> Almost free. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's like I okay, well you get what you pay for, I guess. Yeah. The, I, I guess the flip side, although, you know, this is part of education, is that it's an open network, so you could move the funds to a better app, to a better wallet. Well, that's what I told my neighbor on the flight home, because her brother was in Spain, and Chivo Wallet broke for him, and from Spain, he couldn't get it fixed, and so he couldn't, he was having trouble sending remittances, and he had to use Western Union, and I was saying, listen, you can just use a Bitcoin wallet, and so she looked on my phone and was like, oh, maybe Blue Wallet or something, and I was like, yeah, maybe Blue Wallet, you know, so if you, if you're, uh, unfortunately, Unfortunately, it looks like Chivo is not necessarily educating people as to Chivo alternatives, but well, if, yeah, if, it, of course. <laughs> if it did that, it would be really good, maybe. 
Okay, so uh, the event itself, do you have a rough idea of the size? And I'd also uh, just be curious to know of your general impressions of how the event ran. The Adopting Bitcoin Conference was put on by Galoi. Galoi is the company behind the Bitcoin Beach Wallet. So they're a financial technology company. They provide the software for community Bitcoin banking. And I spoke to many people from Galoi. I heard about the conference from Kamal, who we interviewed in Turkey about the conference and also some of the technologies associated with the Galoi wallet, including stable sets. And I have a very positive and high opinion of the people in that company. I think that they're doing something really interesting around community development, access to financial services. I think these are really, this is low-hanging fruit in terms of development. And some good ideas. And it's good for a distributed model of Bitcoin custody, because there's going to be custody. But if we can have, instead of one giant Coinbase that's easy to regulate, thousands of community banks that might be a little bit harder to regulate, that's probably positive. I agree. And I think uh, history shows us the community banks tend to be the ones that are actually, out of all of the different banks you have a choice, the ones that are going to be the most pro-consumer. I just feel like uh, all of that was leading up to a but. Oh, no, there's no but. Okay. <laughs> the, the conference was great. It, I think there were at least eight or 900 people there. It was over three days. There were at least 100 events, talks, panels. Any developers or... Uh... Oh, mainly developers. Okay. Mainly developers. It's, That's it's a good a very, sign. It's a technical conference. You do get the finance people. They hand wave. They talk about social trends, whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. And it's cool. I mean, that's important, too. Actually, I want to boost... Gosh, who's this person? I have to get the name. I saw an incredible presentation that was not technical. It was by a Bitcoin artist, I'm going to say, creator, okay. Okay. called Nozome Hayase. Okay. And it was this pretty out there, you know, Bitcoin and transhumanism. And it was essentially this interesting takedown of CBDCs and this kind of effective altruism, post-human transhumanism nonsense that's coming out of Silicon Valley. And the structure is about how Bitcoin is this kind of natural response to fiat world that we seem to be living in. Right. And that the the counter to that is this crazy transhumanist, anti-human CBDC, let's control everybody and turn them into robots response or something. Yeah. It does seem to be the peak of an ideology that we're witnessing come into action. That is fascinating. All right. So really engaging individuals, good conference, three days sounds um, sounds about right. Overall, what about um, the overall just signal from it? Did you walk away learning anything or changing your mind on anything? A hundred percent. So I was on a panel with uh, Giacomo Zucco, Peter Todd, and John Carvalho about scaling and layers. And it was an interesting conversation because basically scaling is really hard. There's not a silver bullet to scaling. People like Barack think that by using covenants and allowing multiple parties to share a UTXO, we could onboard the world to Lightning because Barack did the math and you can only onboard about 100 million people to Lightning at our current rate per year. Yeah, but I dispute. But yeah, I dispute. I feel like that's saying that there's only enough IP addresses for for you know some of us and then we all use NAT. But anyways. And I think that part of your argument is Barack's argument that we need to share UTXOs and use them more efficiently. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay. And then you have John Carvalho, who's like, the scaling solution is is tried and tested technology. That's custody and zero conf. You always mention zero conf. And that's true too. And so on the custody side, we have privacy technologies like Fediment and implementations like Cashew, 
which is a basically a Fediment plugin that you could put into any service, including a bank. Because the interesting observation is that banks don't take all your data because they want to steal your privacy. Maybe they do now, but they actually have to monitor every transaction so you don't cheat them. They need to know that you take out exactly what you put in, not more. And so they need out all your transaction history. And that's just how a SQL database works. 100%. That is, as somebody who's worked at a bank for nearly eight years in the past, that really rings true for me. And so what Cashew does is, well, I'm going to put in this black box and it provably, you only get what you put in, but you don't need to know what's going on. And actually, if I were a service provider, I would love that because I don't need to worry about what you're doing. I just know you're not cheating me. And if someone says, turn over all your user data, I'll be like, well, I've got this black box. Yeah. <laughs> Have yeah. at it. Plausible deniability is a beautiful thing for a service provider. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So that was great signal. And then Giacomo, Zuko, and Peter Todd, they have an interesting take, which is technologies like RGB, the sort of layer on Bitcoin that uses Peter Todd's single-use seal discoveries, are infinitely scalable. This is called a client-side validated model, where you do something on the Bitcoin blockchain, but it's just a little bit of data on the blockchain. And then on the client side, we read that data and we infer transactions and all sorts of stuff. Right. So you're not necessarily scaling that blockchain side. You're just scaling that client side, which in theory would just scale with everybody who opens up a client and reads that. So, exactly. So yeah, it, it, makes it takes the data off chain, right. takes the validation off chain. Or a small amount of data on chain. It yeah. takes the validation part off chain. Exactly. Right. So, but what is the drawback of this infinitely scalable client side validated model? The drawback is it doesn't send Bitcoin back and forth. It can do other things, but it doesn't send Bitcoin. So that's interesting. And then, you know, frankly, my takeaway was, gosh, the people who are actually deploying software and developing software here, they seem like A players, they seem like these are the smart people in the room. And I've just never met so many brilliant people who are thinking very carefully about hard problems of both software development, decentralization, consensus, and frankly, economics. There's an economic component there too. So I left incredibly bullish using Lightning for three days. I feel like Lightning is really, it's not a toy. I think it's its fashionable right now to dunk on Lightning, say it's broken, doesn't work or something. It clearly does in many situations. It worked for me every time. I mean, my home node was working better than Moon throughout that, you know, Moon Wallet is a centralized lightning provider and my home node via Tor was working better than Moon. So go figure. That's kind of the inconceivably powerful thing. When you, when you do a lightning payment where your own node is involved uh, and it's instantaneous, I can't even, I can't even explain the feeling. It's like, it's, it's something I've just, I don't even have the words for. Um, and every time I have just an everyday consumer experience with Lightning where I'm using it for a transaction to buy maybe a gift card or a gift like I was off of Satscrap, it's so damn fast. It feels like magic. And it's not like, you know, buying stuff with a PayPal account or buying something with a MasterCard. It's not like that takes a long time, but it does compared to a Lightning transaction. It's so fast. It feels magical. Another really fun thing was, I guess the Bitcoin development community is still pretty small. So you meet people you've heard about. Like I oh, met, yeah. I met Adam Gib uh, Gibson, Waxwing, and I'm going to invite him onto the show. We can talk about Join Market, and he's also has a really interesting proposal around sort of decentralizing privacy. This private participants and networks are sort of a problem because they could also DDoS your network. It's sort of a low level problem, but again, we got a smart person thinking about it very carefully. The other fun thing was I met all these people who seem familiar and. 
There was one guy in particular I'm recalling. I ran into him. We were chatting and I just really felt like I knew him. And then I just realized sitting here, I recognized him because he made some videos about Bisque and he didn't mention it. So it was like, Oh, I recognize you from that bisque video. It's an awkward thing. Like you don't want to lead with, oh, I'm a YouTuber or I'm a podcaster. Like that's an awkward conversation to begin with. So I can understand that. Good. Good. Well, um, I'd love to hear more about Join Market. That's, uh, you know what? Something that's always in the back of my mind. So maybe, uh, maybe some interviews coming out on the show soon. I hope so. I had to interview in a slightly dirty audio environment. So hopefully I can clean those up mm, and mm. have them out for everyone to enjoy. Yeah, I mean, you got to make your call. You got to make a call there. But I think even if you don't release a bunch of interviews, uh, it sounds like it was probably worthwhile in terms of research for the show and making networking connections. So potential guests for the future, too. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of uh, really interesting people doing good work in the Bitcoin space and they're passionate. They're really they're fired passionate. Up. They're really smart. They're super smart. They are the smartest people. <laughs> the smartest people in open source. It's it's really something. All right. One last question just to wrap us up on this topic. If they invite you back next year, are you going to go? Oh, 100%. And I'm taking you with me. All right. Okay. Yeah. This actually, it, based on our conversation here, this definitely sounds like something I should do next year. So, all right. Let's plan on it. Friend of the show, Para Parasol, boosted in a correction. I was unsure about sending in a nitpicky correction. Those are our favorite kind. We're all about the nitpicky here. Yeah. Do you even <laughs> listen to the show? That's probably why they decided to boost. Let's be honest. Hong Kong doesn't have the death penalty and actually has, more or less, depending on who you ask, a separate legal system from mainland China. Not anymore because people get shipped from Hong Kong back to mainland China, but that was true in the past. Anyone convicted of possessing drugs in Hong Kong is, quote unquote, only liable to a fine and imprisonment. Source, CAP 134, Dangerous Drugs Ordinance of Hong Kong. And I looked up this ordinance and I have a slight rebuttal. So first of all, wait, wait, are you saying you have a correction of the correction? No, the correction is totally right. The correction is totally right. There is no death penalty for drug possession in Hong Kong, which actually makes it an outlier in Southeast Asia because China death penalty for drugs. Singapore, death penalty for drugs. I want to say um, Malaysia, death penalty for I'm not God, sure. God, what a buzzkill. There are some buzzkill policies. There. Yeah, geez. Drugs are great. Don't do drugs. That said, I saw a comment that Ritalin is not an illegal drug. And I just want to mention that many drugs that are okay in North America are not okay in Southeast Asia. Sure, okay. And in particular, Ritalin is a commonly prescribed ADHD methamphetamine-based medication. And the technical name methylphenidate, methylphenidate and some derivatives appear on the Hong Kong dangerous drugs list. So even if Caroline had a, because this came up because we were making fun of Caroline from FDX joking about doing meth in Hong Kong. Well, hold on. She wasn't just joking about it. She was disparaging everybody who wasn't doing meth. Right. You're dumb if you're not taking Ritalin, maybe. So even if you had a prescription, it's still a controlled substance in Hong Kong. As it should be. That stuff is rough, man. (laughs) We, We were just highlighting how childish and unprofessional Caroline and FTX and Alameda appeared. So you really don't want to mess around with drugs in you know, Southeast Asia. You know, I do appreciate the uh, correction there, Para. Um, but isn't it funny? That's what you just highlighted. That's the focus. We were discussing that an individual who's responsible for tens of billions of dollars of funds, 16 billion at the top, is disparaging people who don't do meth 
um, on Twitter openly. And uh, I'll tell you what, if anybody's ever managing my funds, <laughs> I sure wouldn't want them talking. You want them high <laughs> as yeah, hell. Yeah. I wouldn't want, I don't, you know what, as long as they do a good job, I don't care what they do, but I don't want them going on about it in a public form. And I think that was really what we wanted to be the key takeaway from our conversation. That's just not right. That was a killer correction. Thank you so much, Paraparasol. And if you want to send feedback into the show, remember you can get in touch, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. Consider joining our Matrix channel using a Matrix channel-like element. Details for the server at JupiterBroadcasting.com slash Matrix. And of course, we love to hear from you via Elboos. You can get a new podcasting app. Just upgrade to a podcasting 2.0 compatible app at newpodcastapps.com. Fountain, Podverse, Castomatic, amongst some of them that make it possible for you to boost into the show like Pitar did. Pitar sent in 7777 sats. Lots of sats. What is that? A row of swans? I actually feel like it's a, a row of like, if I, when I see 77777 like that, I think of a slot machine. Oh, yeah. It's a slot machine. Mm-hmm. In the interest of show research, you must now visit Bitcoin Island in the Philippines, Bitcoin Lake in Guatemala, Lugano in Switzerland, and Madeira. I did not know Madeira was a Bitcoin destination. Yeah. 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 Boy, I can't argue with that logic. I think Madeira produces a very famous type of port, which is a sort of strong, fortified wine. This is why we should have set up that shell company. And, uh, you know, because these would be some great (laughs) write-offs. Right. We need to drink every bottle to find the Bitcoin at the bottom. Could you imagine doing a different Bitcoin dad pod from each one of these locations? Like, we're doing it for three months. Yeah. Uh, That'd be amazing. True Grits boosted in with a thousand sats. I often enjoy the energy section, so I'm going to give a counter boost saying keep up the energy section if you want to, of course. Uh, And True Grits also sent in some enterprise sats, 1701, just to say thanks for the show. Well, we didn't have an enterprise section this week, so. We didn't have an energy section this week. Right. What did I say? Enterprise. (laughs) Enterprise. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Got Star Trek on the mind. Yeah, you know what? It's a good show. Smart Growth boosted in 5,000 sats, spot on with pricing and space in your freezer. I'm tossing everything I have into BTC. Inflation has processing costs up almost $0.09 cents each week the past two months. Thanks for supporting your local farmers. Ooh, that's scary. Oh, is this Smart Growth Farm? Yeah. The... Oh, awesome. Isn't that scary, though? $0.09 cents each week for the past two months? That, I... And that's per pound, I think. I know. I am so lucky I bought in the summer. George Orbinks, no copyright, boosted in with 3,000 sats. Love the show. I'm a newcomer here. So forgive me if you've talked about this before, but what are your thoughts on Monero? From what I have read, it seems to fix a lot of the privacy concerns that people have with Bitcoin with no additional steps required. Do you think Monero could become a viable replacement for Bitcoin or is there room for both to coexist? Well, thanks so much for the question, George Orbinks. (laughs) <laughs> you know what? I love like the just slightly off brand. That's great. You can check out our interview with Seth for privacy because we talk a lot about Monero. And the TLDR is that Chris and the Bitcoin dad are big fans of Monero. We think it's totally cool. I may or may not have run a Monero node or be running one. And it's great because it does privacy as default. But what's the cost? Why doesn't Bitcoin do that if it's so good? The cost is that making sure that there's no inflation on the Monero blockchain, making sure that there isn't an inflation bug or something like that, is a little harder with Monero because of the way that they blind transaction amounts. And so you, instead of just counting the transactions and the coins and the UTXO set, you have to do a mathematical proof that maybe is less trustworthy. So you're saying it's not 
quite as clear for a total accounting of all the coins? Yeah, well, it's definitely not as clear because the amounts are blinded. So it's like a yeah. it's like a zero knowledge proof or not. Yeah. I'm using the wrong term. But I, I follow proof. what you're saying. And I think if if you were to ask yourself what is the number one feature of Bitcoin right now is that it is a trustable source that is the opposite of the fiat system and that every coin for all of history is accountable right now today. It is a fully trustable system when we live in an era where no system, no establishment, no body is trusted, right? No body, no government, no organization is trusted, but you can trust the Bitcoin math. And so Monero does offer functionality, but it doesn't solve that existential crisis that all of humanity seems to be facing at a worldwide scale at this very moment. And when Monero proponents talk about Monero transactions being smaller than Bitcoin transactions, this can be a little misleading because they're actually saying that a Monero transaction is smaller than a Bitcoin coin join transaction. And not every transaction needs to be a coin join, in my opinion. Boosts don't need to be coin joins. So I think that it's kind of an apples to oranges comparison. And I'm unconvinced that Monero can scale to even the scale that Bitcoin is operating at. And Bitcoin is currently a hobbyist project. There's maybe 300 million sovereign Bitcoin users with their own wallets. So this is still a small thing. So you're saying we're a nation state? The nation state of Bitcoin? Is that what you're saying? Certainly, certainly the California Bitcoin, maybe. I feel like this is a great question. Like as Bitcoiners, we should be always asking, what is Monero doing right, though? Like that, I think, is a positive influence on Bitcoin. Privacy by default is great. I think Monero would be an awesome drive chain, an awesome layer two side chain that connects to Bitcoin. You can go into it, you can do the privacy stuff, and then you can settle on Bitcoin without going through an exchange. I think that would be an awesome experience. So to his question, could both coexist? I think, yes, it's already happening. And if history is to be a teacher, it's probably going to be whatever we see today is just going to kind of continue in a new iteration. So it'll always be out there and people will just move between these digital currencies very easily. That said, I think that the real ratio to look at is the Monero price in Bitcoin. And I've looked at this chart before and it trends to zero. So it might be that in nominal dollar terms, Monero looks like it has utility, but in Bitcoin terms, it doesn't. So that's just something to keep in mind. I don't, we don't, we don't, you know, we don't really give financial advice. I can't tell you whether or not you should hold Monero. I view it as a tool. So it's not something that I'd really like hold for a long time. We received 2,000 sats from the Muso. Thanks for a great podcast. Um, I sometimes wonder whether the character limit for boosting is a little too low. And the Muso uh, mentions that because this individual sent an email about the Bitcoin Lightning experience. And basically, they ran into some troubles. They had trouble setting up Podverse and Albi. They had trouble setting up Blue Wallet's L&D Hub server. They had trouble sending in boosts with Albi. I mean, it really seemed like a pretty rough experience using Lightning. And it's really great feedback. I'm going to share the email with Chris. And I think that it might inspire us to say something more structured about how to think about boosting or setting up your first Lightning wallet. Yeah, or or maybe just like, uh, this is a path that we can recommend you could use or something like that. I've been thinking a lot about that because depending on which direction you decide to come at it, you can have a pretty bumpy time. What the Musos ended up doing is using Albi Wallet, but also some features from Blue Wallet. And they don't 
quite overlap or talk to each other. I think that in our situation, we kind of get away from this problem because when you run your own lightning node, you can then connect to it using Zeus, which is Evan Kaloudis's lightning wallet that connects directly to your node. And this is a really simple, great wallet. And you can do clever things like I can connect to my node via WireGuard, and then my node can, can connect to the Lightning Network via Tor. So it really slows down when my connection to the node has to go through Tor, and then it has to send out through Tor, and like we talk through Tor. So by cutting Tor out of my management of the Lightning node, it's a really great, fast experience. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned Zeus. I love it too. I tried it, and it is open source, and it kind of turns your node into your backend bank. And I think where a lot of people get hung up is taking on-chain Bitcoin and trying to make it lightning Bitcoin and then trying to move it into their boost wallet. This is a tricky problem depending on how you come at it. And if you're in the States, more and more, I have just been telling people, use the Cash App. It's so simple. The Cash App does like a lot of the back-end math. If you scan a Lightning QR code, the Cash App just uses Lightning. If you scan an on-chain Bitcoin QR code, it uses on-chain. Like It just solves a lot of the UI issue for end users. But of course, outside the States, I understand not as much uh, options there. Ultimately, I kind of want to come up with a really simple RoboSats to Lightning Wallet to app, you know, whatever it is, Fountain Pods or whatever. Because like, if we're going to tell people a pathway, why not send them down the non-KYC path if we can? And the thing I like about RoboSats, and I am looking at a couple of other options, but the thing I like about RoboSats is that it's all lightning from the beginning if you go that way. And so it just makes it really simple to then get it in your podcasting to wallet. Right. Yeah. You could just send it directly into a, uh, a Fountain app or something. Or exactly. And I mean, if it was, you know, if you're dealing with thousands of dollars, I'd say don't store that in a fountain. Well, because it's custodial. Yeah. But if you're dealing with, you know, I, I probably I, I probably have about 60,000 sats on fountain right now. To me, that's totally acceptable. Yeah, because that's like hundred dollars or something, right? Yeah, and it's just boosting money. It's what I use to boost because I love sending boosts because not only do I love getting them boosts. Oh, that's ten dollars. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love sending them boosts. You ready for our baller? Crypto Kyle comes in this week, twenty-four thousand five hundred and thirty-two sats. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Right, so Kyle comes in and he says, Bitcoin Dad and Chris, where can I find the most comprehensive listing of all the options for the Bitcoin.com file? With those options put in layman's terms, or at least somewhat clear terms, lots of random examples out there of .com files, but I have yet to really find anything comprehensive. And Chris, your enthusiasm for Rust got me interested, uh, and now I am down a coding journey. Thanks, and keep on stacking. Thanks, Crypto Kyle. That's great to hear you're uh, checking out Rust. Uh, um, I would love to know why he needs to know. I mean, I know this is the wrong answer, but why does he need to know every single option for Bitcoin.com? This is, I think what Crypto Kyle is giving us in this boost is a really interesting insight into how he learns stuff, right? Because he wants to like map out what the backend software is completely capable of via its, its config file. And then kind of, I guess from there, reverse engineer how the software must work and what it's capable of, right? That's got to be what Kyle's trying to do here, which is interesting. Yeah, this sounds like a systems administrator approach to Bitcoin. Yes. Just give me all the options and I will see which ones apply to me. That is a book. You, that right there, the System Administrator's Guide to Bitcoin. And we just gave it away. We've given, given the milk away for free. Well, hey, you know long. what? 
24,000 sats. And in exchange, Crypto Kyle just got a book idea. So if he wants to learn and run with it, there you go. Just boost in when it is a huge success. We're going to be bought by the Crypto Kyle podcast. (laughs) I hope Crypto Kyle Publishing. (laughs) (laughs) The short answer is, I don't believe that exists. There are many random places where people talk about the comp file from a version of Bitcoin Core from two years ago. Jameson Lop has a Bitcoin Core comp file generator, which you can kind of infer options from and sort of understand understand a little bit about the way that he generates a config file. That's pretty useful. Yeah, and it's updated for the latest release. So Jameson really keeps everything up to date. Uh, very thoughtful in that respect. But I'm pretty sure Crypto Kyle told me about Jameson's con file configurator, so I don't think it'll help him. We'll, we'll look into it. I think you've probably done more research than us on this point, And we're looking forward to your book on the subject. Yeah, definitely. All right. And our last boost came in from Baffo. Coming in again, 6,670 sats. Another generous Baffo boost. And he says, you likey the Baffo boost? We likey. We like you a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Baffo. And thank you, everybody. We got a few other boosts that didn't make into the show. They were just like, you know, like a like the show or uh, just a boost with no message. We see you out there. We appreciate you. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, November 25th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with... With me. It's Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>